Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. With me today is David Richards, an American artist who has just spent the last two years inside Myanmar where he was working as a teacher. And he's got a few tales to tell about life with the junta. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's go right back to the start. How did you wind up in Myanmar and you were there for the coup? Take us through that. Okay, I was uh, I was living here in Phnom Penh for eight years, teaching uh, advanced level English writing to university students. Mm-hmm. And I had been following a lot of the events uh, that had been happening in Burma uh, during that time. Uh, basically, I've been following uh, the events in Burma from about 1995 until the present time, and I was fascinated by what what I was reading about. I, most of my information was coming from either the Bangkok Post or from the Cambodia Daily. Right. So but you arrived in Myanmar when? Uh, 2012. Ten years ago. Okay. Um, you've, how long were you there for? Ten years. Right. And so you went through the transition to democracy? Correct. And then you were there for the coup. Correct. And take us through the coup. Uh, Gather myself here for a minute. Uh, The coup was staged on uh, February 1st, uh, 2021. Mm -hmm. And basically, uh, we all woke up one morning and uh, the military had made an announcement that for a solid year there was going to be a military coup and uh, and the previous election that had happened in 2020 of November uh, was considered uh, fraudulent and uh, not legitimate and uh, rife with uh, corruption and this is all the take by the military uh, who uh, basically was saying that the country uh, needed the military to steer them forward and they didn't any longer need democracy, even though 88% of the 54 million people voted to keep democracy. And uh, when they they announced that the coup was gonna last a year, uh, it was a shock to everybody um, and then a couple of months later, the military announced that uh, they admit they changed their mind. They said, well, it's not going to be a year. It's going to be two years. And that's how it started. What did you see on the streets in those first few months? Massive protests. Protests like, like, a, protests like I've never seen before. We've seen protests around the world. We've seen protests in Hong Kong. We've seen protests in Cambodia. It's been going on for a long time. Now, what happened in Myanmar, I don't think anybody outside the junta would approve of it. It's been an ongoing, very nasty situation in a country that has been at civil war for a long time. And this civil war is obviously taking on a whole different hue. That's correct. That's correct. So let's just slowly go back 
to what you saw on the streets. As an American artist, you're an outsider, you're in there, and you're a witness to what happened to the local people of Myanmar after the junta seized power. So the, f the first day that they announced this coup was February 1st, and there wasn't, <clears throat> it was a shock to everybody on that day. It wasn't until the very next day that uh, people started protesting. But they wasted no time. The very next day, they were out in full force protesting. And when I say that, I'm, they were peaceful protests. From the very beginning, they were peaceful protests. Uh, nobody was being aggressive. Nobody was being confrontational. Uh, there were healthcare workers out in full force in their uniforms, in, in the uh, whatever clothing they normally wear uh, to go to work. Some of them uh, were, like the women were wearing red skirts and white blouses. And there was a sea of thousands of these red skirts and white shirts that I saw. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. That very first day after the coup was announced, thousands and thousands of people took to the streets and it was very uh moving uh, to see this it was, to see the mobilization to see the unity uh and uh to see the the uh, spirit of the burmese people that were basically saying we don't accept this do you think the junta the military anticipated this response the massive protests did that take them by surprise or did they simply not care well they definitely not didn't care but it definitely took them by surprise they were not expecting that at all they were not expecting that kind of pushback um the because there was such an overwhelming majority of burmese that had voted to keep democracy there was serious pushback by all of those people because they they felt like their their vote had been taken away from them and and clearly it had been so they stood up to the military and they basically said look <laughs> you can't do this what you're doing is wrong it's criminal and you, you don't deserve to get away with this so they so they came out in massive numbers and these numbers continued to grow when i i, I ride my bicycle all over burma and i when i um first rode down to the city center from where I lived, which is like seven kilometers away, all the way to the city center, I was seeing uh, massive protests of uh, Burmese people marching with signs and slogans and all kinds of things to indicate that they were not in favor of this uh, junta and this uh, coup. So they were expressing themselves in every way possible, but but outwardly and openly, and uh, and the numbers just kept growing every day. So, like I said, all the way down to the city center, I, I passed by thousands of uh, protesters that were marching in the streets. And when I got to the city center, it was unbelievable how many people had gathered all around uh, the Sule Pagoda area, and um, and they were. They were chanting, they were, uh, again, it was all peaceful, 100%. And they were, there were people playing guitars, singing folk songs. 
it was like uh, being in the '60s uh, at a at Woodstock or something, and it was you know it was that kind of camaraderie uh, among the people, a hundred percent peaceful, not confrontational in any way, and people were just uh, laughing, right? You know, trying to trying to enjoy the moment as much as possible. They were clearly making the, their uh, feelings be known, uh, but in the process they were you know they were laughing and and uh smiling and hugging each other and basically saying look we're all in this together and we all share the same common feeling that this military needs to be dissolved at what point did it turn nasty was there one specific incident or just no, collapsed fairly quickly it it didn't collapse fairly quickly it it actually the numbers kept growing and they were growing exponentially. Like right, I'm not said, talking about the numbers. I'm talking about that. Um, I'm talking about at what point did it go yeah, pear shape? What, right. what point and, did it go from you know this is where people were singing kumbaya and playing their guitars, right, right. lovely. But at what point did it turn nasty? Well, that, I was getting to that. They basically, as the numbers kept growing, the military was starting to get paranoid about. All of that. They, they. First of all, they, like I said, they, they were not expecting this to happen. They weren't expecting this kind of pushback at all. And as the numbers kept increasing daily, and you know, the streets mm. were just literally filling up with people, and the protesters were going into neighborhoods chanting. And then as they would go into the neighborhoods, people would come out of their homes and start walking with them and joining with them. And uh, after about, I kept checking out, I mean, I kept, you know, uh, not joining the protest, but just going down and witnessing the the massive numbers of people and how they were responding to this. As I was seeing this, I was seeing the military starting to assemble um, on the other side of it. You know, they had a, a barrier set up where the protesters couldn't go beyond a certain point, And the military was kind of making their stand. They brought in tanks and trucks and guns and and basically set up uh, a no entry zone around uh Sule Pagoda. Right. And uh and that's also where City Hall is and uh and the uh high court and all of that. You know, it's in the central part of the downtown area. And <clears throat> the protesters were were right up to the to the edge of the barriers and on the other side were the soldiers with their guns out but not engaging yet and they were just basically um trying to you know set up for it and and it, i think what what it what it felt like happened uh was there was no no single incident that led to the retaliation by the military but i think it just came as a direct order from the from the top guy um we called him mla his, his those were the first letters of each of his names, and um, and just to make it simple, we'll just call him M M L A. And he was directed these orders um, throughout the coup, and and is still doing that. Uh, basically, he has these arbitrary decisions that he makes that that you know defy logic. And it felt like there was an order that came down at some point where he said, okay, now that this these protests have gotten out of control in terms of numbers, uh, they're still peaceful. Nobody's throwing anything at the military. Nobody's uh, spitting on the military, though they certainly wanted to. And basically, after about a week, 
of the numbers continuing to grow and everything, they, they the military just started uh, firing. Quiet. They started firing tear gas right. and into the open crowds, and then uh, when that didn't seem to disperse the crowds as much as they wanted, then they started firing rubber bullets into the crowds. Uh, and this is a crowd of people who have no weapons at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then following the rubber bullets came the real bullets. Right. And and that's when people started running uh, to get to get away. Now, what, how much longer after that that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi came out and said, join the resistance? Uh, it was probably about three months into the coup when everybody pretty much realized that these guys aren't going anywhere, that they're here to stay and they, uh, and they mean business and they're going to stop at nothing to maintain their power. Uh, even though it was illegitimate power, um, they, they were determined to, you know, make this coup last. Mm-hmm. And there've been a lot of attempts by, by protest leaders and, and whatever to, reach out to the international community. The Burmese people really felt that um, the international community was going to rescue them from this. How would they do that? I mean, I've heard a lot of complaints about the international community. And certainly, I mean, they've got everybody's sympathy. There's been a lot of sanctions imposed. But what would people expect? An invasion? Yeah, they really thought that. They really... Um, they really thought that somebody, you know, that the international community would get together, they would see what's going on in Burma, and they would be, uh, in, they would condemn it. Uh, Which they've and, done. Yeah, and and in addition to just condemning it, they would actually take action. And the, that action would be? To take out the top guys. I mean, what, they expected to go in and pluck them out of the out of their military hideouts and arrest them and whisk them off to... I mean, well, I'm, try, I'm trying to get... What I'm trying to right. get at is, uh, I mean, Burma has descended into a consistent state of civil war for many decades now, right. up and down. Now, uh, some people still don't want to call it a civil war, what's going on but it in is. there now. Exactly. But it is, right. for sure. So well, the, what, what can the international community do? I mean, let's get logistically real here. I mean, the Americans are not going to invade Burma Right. To overthrow Hong Min Hlaing, who I presume you mean right, as MLA. Exactly. Right. No, then nobody else is going to do it. ASEAN has proven itself to be a complete... Joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. True, uh, fair words. Yeah, exactly. So what, what actually can be done that could be done as opposed to raising people's expectations to a point where they can only be disappointed on top of the coup? Well, the, the Burmese people are very uh, idealistic and very romantic in in the way they approach life in general and they had this romantic notion that uh you know the cavalry was going to come in and take care of the military and the life would carry on back to democracy as it should have been and again this is not a realistic uh perception this is not a realistic uh uh solution it's not going to happen that way but Personally, I feel that if uh, if Obama was still in uh, was still president, and this happened, he would have uh, staged a zero dark thirty type of operation, gone in and extracted uh, the top guys, and the young guys who 
take orders from this guy would just be going, wow, what do we do now? You know, you just cut off the head of the snake. Now I, what do we do? I think that's wishful thinking. I really doubt it that. It is wishful happened. thinking. It but is. Let's get back to the reality. Right. Tell me about life on the ground. How did life change after the coup? And there's, the resistance forces have been doing tie-ups now with the ethnic groups who have been staging this long-running civil war, particularly around the fringes of the country. How did life change? Um, well... Before I get to that, let mm. me just answer your previous question mm. about Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, <clears throat> three months into the coup, about mm. that, it might have been a little bit more, uh, my memory's a little foggy on those kinds yeah. of details, but she basically made the announcement over the internet that, okay, nobody's coming to rescue us. We've got to take the matters into our own hands. This is the only way we're going to you know, do get anything done. If we have any chance at all, we have to do this ourselves. So take up arms, fight the fight back, you know, let the war begin, basically. And the war she was talking about was the war between the protesters, the resistance forces, and the military. And the amazing thing about uh, that is that so many young people whose mm -hmm. parents had been through the previous rule of military for 50 years and their grandparents who had also been through that, these young people were willing to sacrifice everything, including their lives, to uh, make sure that this military did not succeed. There were a lot of young people that just went out there every day with the attitude, look, I don't care if I die doing this, but I'm going to, I refuse to accept this military. I refuse to let them rob us of our future. And therefore, we're going to, we're going to fight back. And we're, you know, it might be the David versus Goliath kind of syndrome, but they were willing to make that sacrifice. And how did that change life on the ground, your daily? Uh, there started to be um, more widespread fear about going out of your homes because uh, it felt like uh, civil war, real civil war was on its way. The, the civil war had already been going on in Burma for a number of years, as you mentioned earlier, with all the ethnic groups fighting against the military and the military burning down their villages and all that kind of stuff for, for many, many years, decades. And um, this was taking on a new twist because the um, uh, the protesters who were just civilians who had no military training or combat training whatsoever were reaching out to the ethnic groups and saying, okay, you guys have been fighting the military all these years. We want to join you and we want you to train us and we want you to give us weapons because we want to go after these guys in every way we know how and every way you can teach us. Uh, and so they, they took that approach and the ethnic groups embraced that and worked with them uh, and trained a lot of people. And what started happening is as these people started getting um, more skilled and, and knowing how to, you know, have some sort of attack uh, against an enemy, they, um, they started making homemade bombs and um, there were these random explosions that were happening every day in the city, in the capital city of Rangoon, um, where the the police and the military had set up all these different bunkers 
on city blocks, like uh, the Secretariat Building, which takes up an entire city block, and is the building where uh, General Aung San was assassinated mm-hmm. back in the late 40s. This, there were bunkers set up on one of the corners of that uh, property, and then on the opposite corner of that same property. And there were bunkers set up all over the city. And when I'm talking about bunkers, I'm talking about a military-style bunker of uh, sandbags piled maybe two meters high, and then an empty helmet would be set up on top of the sandbags to make it look like there was somebody wearing the helmet. But in fact, the soldiers were hiding behind the sandbags because they were frightened out of their minds. This military has never fought any kind of military battle ever. The only enemy they've ever had since their inception has been fighting civilians. Uh, they've never they've never fought another military force of any kind. The last time that happened in Burma was back when kings were fighting each other on like elephants. Mm-hmm. You know, so this military had zero experience with somebody attacking them. All they did was attack innocent unarmed citizens with weaponry, and the citizens had no weaponry. So this is the kind of target that I mean, this is the kind of behavior that they were exhibiting so these guys were were frightened out of their minds of the normal people they were frightened of Aung San Suu Kyi who never had any weapons either they were threatened uh, by her because she had such charisma with the Burmese people they loved her so much that it was a real threat to the military and that's why they wanted to put her away for as long as they could to wipe out the memory of her among the people but you know, people see right through that, and they they didn't for a second um, believe that she was a criminal or that she did anything wrong, even though the military was spreading all these lies and propaganda that she was a criminal. Uh, again, just trying to make her disappear. Right. Now, getting back to my original question, life on the street, how was it? I mean, how difficult was it to get a loaf of bread? How hard was it? How hard is it now? I mean, you've only just gotten out. How more difficult has it become over the last two years well, to live in Rangoon and the other well, provincial the sub- cities of the country, okay, around the, the country. The supply chains started drying up. It was harder to get goods and services into the country because so anything that was being uh, imported from Thailand or neighboring countries had to go through military checkpoints to get to their destination. And the, there would be a military checkpoint <clears throat> at the borders and then there would be numerous checkpoints along the way. And in every case, at every checkpoint, there were soldiers holding out their hands saying, well, you got to pay us to go through, right. you know. So the fact that the drivers of these vehicles carrying uh, supplies and goods and food and things like that, the, the fact that they had to keep paying these bribes before the f- products ever made it to their destination drove the prices of everything way up. So it, it made it so that goods didn't always get through, but even when they did get through, the prices kept increasing. Right. And during during the first year of the coup, uh, prices of everything like rice and cooking oil and all the staple basic items tripled in price. And that's countrywide. I mean, that. That's mm. that was. Well, I'd on. imagine that the goods on the back of the truck, there wouldn't be much left by the time they got to their final destination. That's also true. Yes. Right. Yeah. So there was that problem, and then because the this military has been running the economy into the ground, uh, the 
um, it was creating more widespread poverty throughout the country. Uh, Burma has always been a poor country in a lot of ways, but at, but with development and investment by outside, uh, you know, by foreigners and whatever, um, the country was doing quite well in a lot of ways. The, the, the middle class had started to become more affluent. Um, the people just below the middle class were also becoming more affluent. There were still there was still poverty and there were still people at the low end of the uh, food chain, but uh, that that situation was improving with democracy. It was really, life was becoming better for everyone countrywide sure. because of that. Right. But that was then. That was then. That was then. So now with this coup and the economy going into the shitter, you know, uh, uh, it, it really created deeper problems and and you know widespread poverty and the uh the military uh is not very educated most of the military i can safely say have no more than a third grade education and uh given that <clears throat> if they're going to run the country like they claimed they could do they needed to have economic advisors they needed to have somebody who was more educated more intelligent somebody of course more those economic those economic advisors like Sean Turnell, the Australian who was a policy advisor for Aung San Suu Kyi, he's uh, still in jail along with all the other educated intellectuals who might have a right. clue in what should be done with the country. Yeah, they, they basically locked up Aung San Suu Kyi and all of her associates, everybody connected with her in any way. And these are all the people who had been running the country uh, from a knowledgeable standpoint, and and that's why the country was surging upward mm -hmm. during that time. And then uh, by eliminating all those people, putting putting them away, and then not hiring anybody who was competent right. to take their place, uh, it left a gaping hole in in the operation of the country. So the mm -hmm. uh, if they'd been smart, they would have hired some economic advisors who who really did know what was going on who could actually steer them through this coup but they didn't so the country literally is falling apart what are some of the worst incidents you witnessed <clears throat> well um the i guess the most horrifying things that i witnessed were were what uh, my burmese friends would either tell me about from their first-hand experience mm. or what they would show me on on uh, video or whatever from uh, from people who had taken the footage so things that I saw on a daily basis that really had a permanent effect on me psychologically and that I know had an effect on the Burmese people psychologically was every single day hundreds of military trucks were fanned out all over the cities throughout the whole country, mm -hmm. carrying 20 to 30 armed soldiers at all times. And the soldiers would be pointing their guns out of the front of the truck toward women and children that are just going to the market to buy food. Uh, they would point the guns out of the back of the truck just to be very menacing and um, trying to intimidate and spread fear. And even though I wasn't a target as a foreigner, they were not ever going to shoot a foreigner. 
because obviously that would create an international incident. I don't think they've. I don't think they've frightened of international incidents, and foreigners have been locked up. And I'm not convinced that being a foreigner would have given you, uh, you know, a pass out. Why? But and you're right. It did not give me a pass out. It absolutely didn't. We were not, we were not immune to anything that the military wanted to do. But they did pretty much have a hands off policy toward most foreigners. They didn't want us there. They wanted us out of there because they basically wanted to be able to contain the Burmese people in their own country, torture the hell out of them and make them, uh, you know, have to deal with that, you know, on a daily basis. And they they knew that foreigners would be, uh, to, <laughs> to be, to put it mildly, the foreigners would be disgusted with what's going on and would condemn them. Uh, and they didn't want any opposition at all. So they... There were times when I did get confronted by the military in a mild way, but but it's still uh, they were trying to push my buttons for sure, and I didn't uh, I didn't play into it. I didn't uh, you know I wanted to survive. I wanted to uh, keep living, so I I didn't you know buy into there. I just would be polite to them and you know uh, carry on. What has happened in the country in the last six months? They established a, a new law a few months back where they basically said any investor or any body bringing U.S. dollars into the country must exchange all of that money within 24 hours for local currency. And the local currency uh, exchange rate on the black market was about 20, 2020, you know, about 2020, something like that, you know. Uh, ratio and but the fixed rate that the military had established uh was 1850 so anybody bringing money into the country had to exchange it uh, within 24 hours at the fixed rate whereas if they kept were able to keep the dollars and exchange it at the black market rate they'd be benefiting much better investors would be thinking well (laughs) why would i do that if i you know, I'm going to lose money from the first day that I get there. I'm going to be losing money before I even open the doors of my business. So it basically scared off a lot of potential investors because why would anybody in their right mind do that? No, I'd imagine the black market is uh, flourishing at the moment. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, that's helping people to make ends meet? It does help. It definitely helps. Right. What do you think should be done? Good question. Good question. I, I don't know. <laughs> if, I, if I were going to speak in ideal terms, nah, I'm not even going to do that. I guess because that's, again, it's fantasy world for any suggestion I have would just be. You think there should be more sanctions? No. Think, no, uh, that's because that doesn't do any good. Mm-hmm. The, the military is being financed a lot by China, and they've also been getting weapons and uh, money from China. For whatever reason, China seems to want to support this military coup i'm not quite sure why because it uh on some levels i've been hearing that china doesn't like this and it it's creating a certain instability that disturbs china because they want stability because they want to be able to continue to develop rail lines and highways through burma Oil to get to india pipelines pipelines all that Yuli, stuff yeah yeah, yeah 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 so, what do you think should be what do you oh think? what yeah uh I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm 
pretty much at a loss because the only solutions I have are such idealistic ones. They're not realistic at all. Do you, think, do, you, do you think the resistance, which is being formulated in conjunction with the ethnic armies, do you think they have a chance of um, overthrowing the junta at some point? As much as I'd like to believe they do have a chance, I don't think they do. I really don't think they do. There's just... Uh, it's too... They're not enough of them. They're not strong enough. And uh, the military is just... Uh, they do so much to cut you off at the knees. I mean, they're they're burning entire villages, burning people alive, burning livestock alive. And, uh, you know, people are running out of their homes into the jungle for safety because their house is on fire. I understand the military is, or has been torching villages. It, obviously, it forces people to evacuate, to flee immediately, and then you have snipers waiting at the other end and popping off who they don't like. Absolutely. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah. And it's happening every day. And because they will not allow journalists into the country or out of the country... Nobody can report this stuff. I mean, it's uh, it needs to be reported. Do you think the West should be supplying more arms to the resistance? If they could, if, but how? Well, do they, they certainly can. But I mean, it's whether or not they should, and it's whether or not logistically it's an issue. Well, but I, I would say that if if the we've established that the international community isn't going to do anything, and since that's the case, then the way that the international community could help is yes supply the resistance with as many arms as possible, heavy weaponry, tanks, whatever it well, takes. They can't I'm do, serious. They can't do tanks. Because no, I know they can. I know the, they can. But I'm um, just saying, but whatever they can small do. Small arms, jungle warfare. Yeah, yeah, anything like that. It's bound to help because it's it's like that, it's like a, a uh, an insect or a mosquito just, you know, coming at you, you know, coming at you and biting you and then backing off and then coming and biting you again. If enough of that kind of thing happened, I, they could be. You could chip away at that at that military. I think it could be chipped away at. And if and if there was any way to get to the MLA, the main guy, he needs to be removed from the situation and dealt with properly, judiciously in a international tribunal okay. for human rights abuses. And on that note, David Richards. Artist, teacher, and the man who rode his bike across Myanmar post-coup. Thank you very much. You're welcome.